Lord, thank you that you are the one who invites us into your presence. Thanks that you're here tonight and that you desire to speak to us. And so we ask that you'd open up your word as we look into it and that you'd be our teacher. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, did you know that today is one of the most important dates in the liturgical calendar of the church? It's Father's Day. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always kind of, I always kind of struggle. What are you supposed to do with that? Is that really something to pay attention to, or is it more like uh, just an intrusion from secular culture? Maybe something we inherited from Hallmark cards or something. But you know what? Even though the Bible doesn't say about uh, anything about Father's Day, by the way, I have two other events today that I'm thinking about. This is the last time that I'm teaching on uh, in the service uh, before we leave. My family and I are leaving, and I'm going to pursue the Ph.D., and we leave in August. So it's the last time. So I'm thinking about that. But also I'm thinking about today is my 22nd uh, anniversary of marriage with Evelyn. And so we're excited about that, and we're celebrating. Thank Thank you. So it's a day where I'm really grateful. I'm grateful for for Evelyn. I'm grateful for you guys, and grateful for the Lord's word for us. But um, and then I discovered the Bible doesn't say about those last two events. It doesn't say anything either. And so, uh, but it does say a lot about Father's Day, or about fathers, and about fathering. And so I want to take a look at it, but I want to expand the boundaries a little bit and talk about a message, really, where for all of us, God's going to bless us when we keep Him at the center. And uh, after all, the important thing is not biological fatherhood. Yes, that's a gift from God. We can be grateful for that. It's one of the miracles of the natural order. But the important thing that Scripture focuses on is spiritual fatherhood and motherhood. Yes, children need a father just like they need a mother. But the important thing is to bring children up in the love, in the instruction of the Lord. That's what the Bible is very clear about. So I want to think about how we do as fathers, mothers, as spiritual fathers and mothers, as spiritual friends to come alongside and mentor others, how we do it to put God at the center, to make Him top priority. The Bible has a lot to say about that. The important thing is relationship. It's to be in a relationship with God and it's relationship with others where God can bless it. So today's message not only applies to males who have made babies, but it applies to all of us. The issue is this. How can all of us put God at the center of our families and of our whole life? Well, today we begin, like I mentioned, it's a summer series on the Psalms. And I think it's a great place to focus in the summer, just to open up the book of Psalms. After all, that's really the prayer book of Christians ever since ancient times. The Psalms are how we understand the Holy Spirit to be praying through us, to be talking back to God. God talks to us and we respond. That's the Psalms. The Psalm for today, Psalm 127, shows how much we depend on God in every area of life. It picks up two basic themes. Number one, uselessness. Those things that are useless, that are futile in the long run. But number two, it picks up the theme of blessing. How to connect with God's blessing. See, God warns that a certain way, going a certain way, pursuing a certain path in life is useless. But on the other hand, if you make God priority, 
Another way that brings wonderful blessing. Well, the first part of the psalm shows the uselessness of life when we don't put God at the center. And so it looks at three of the basic things of life. Building a house, guarding a city, and making a living. It shows that unless our lives go along with God's purpose for them, then it's useless. The first thing is this. Unless the Lord builds the house, the work of the builders is useless. See, Jesus talked about pretty much the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. I think he was looking back, and this is his commentary on Psalm 127. Jesus tells the story about two guys that build houses. The first one builds on a solid foundation. The other is a foolish man, and he builds his house right on dirt, on shifting sands. The constant is the story, is the house. We're all building a house. We're all building a house in the sense that we're, we're doing stuff that makes up a lifetime. We're all trying to build a life. That's the constant. But the variable in the story is the foundation. One's built on rock, and that represents Jesus. One's built on dirt or on shifting sand, and that represents anything else besides Jesus. So the constant is that we're all building a house. The variable is the foundation. I think we all know how important a good foundation is. I was driving around here in the area and up on Clyde Hill, and I saw a house that um, I love looking at buildings and different styles of architecture, and I, I saw this cool-looking house, and it, it was from about 1915, I thought, and uh, it was surrounded on a big lot by old apple trees, just an orchard around it. It looked beautiful. I noticed it was for sale, and as soon as it sold, the bulldozers came in and knocked that thing down, demolished the whole thing. I wondered how come, and I felt sad about it, and then I heard from a neighbor that that house didn't have any foundation. It was built right on the dirt. So the amazing thing was not that that house didn't last, it was that it had lasted for so long. We all know about how important a foundation is. You know, life's a lot like that, it seems to me. We're all building, we're all doing the stuff that adds up to a lifetime. Think about the choices facing us. It's an incredible array of choices. Even when you go into the grocery store to get a cereal and you see the incredible array and you're going to be stuck there for 15 minutes deciding on one thing, well, all the choices around us. You know, I grew up in a, in mostly in neighborhoods of little 1950s boxy tracked homes in Southern California in Long Beach. And they're made out of wood and stucco. And they all look exactly the same except for just some decorative details that are stuck on that are kind of interchangeable. And so it's as if they thought, well, we'll bring architectural style just by tossing in a, a different mix in all of these different, these different boxes. And that's where I grew up. You know, the amazing thing about houses is that you don't have to do that. Think about the style choices we have before us. Just drive around this area. You see everything from Bauhaus, modernism, to a Swiss chalet. You see everything from Victorian to a glass and steel box. It's an incredible array of choices. We're like that too. We have an incredible diversity. The houses that we're building are going to look incredibly different. 
We have all these different styles and gifts and abilities, and we're trying to build a life with these. You know, that kind of diversity is great. It's wonderful. That's how it should be. But when it comes to the foundation, we're all going to need a foundation that's solid. We all need to build on Christ. So diversity is great. All the different styles are great. But you build your house directly on dirt. You try to make the structure itself the foundation, and it's not going to hold up. It can't sustain the building. Well, let's apply this to our lives, to building a life. Is your family important to you? Great. It should be. That's a gift from God. Give thanks for your family, but don't make it the basis for your life. That's not fair to your family members. They can't sustain it. You'll end up trying to live your life through them. You can say the same thing about anything in life, about a hobby, about a passion, about um, a volunteer position you're dedicated to, your job, whatever. Anything honorable is a gift from the Lord. Give thanks for it. That makes a good house, but a bad foundation. What we're saying is this. It's not good enough to make God into an addition onto your house. It's not good enough just to build on an extra room for God. For our house to make sense, for it to be what we want it to be, we have to, for it to hold together in the long run, we've got to let Him be the builder and build it on the foundation that's solid, that's Jesus Christ. So the key is this. Make God your highest priority. Let Him do the building. Make sure your building is His building. The second thing is this. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. Families build homes and sentries guard cities. But both activities are useless unless the Lord's behind it. Ultimately, the Lord protects a city, not our own strength. I think sometimes in our modern times, we, we forget how important city walls were. If you study history at all, or read the Bible accounts, or even if you travel around in places that still have medieval structures up, the basis for a medieval city, you're going to see how much the city wall was a part of that structure. I'm reminded of that by seeing the movie Troy that just came out. I don't know how many of you have seen that. It's, uh, it's an entertaining movie. It has a lot of war violence, so I, I warn you about that. But in seeing it, it was fascinating to see the issue of city walls and are they going to fend off the enemy? Are they going to hold the enemy at bay? Are they going to work? And so you see the city walls. At one point in the story, Hector, and he's the king's son, and he's noble and he's good, and all of the Greeks are surrounding this, the Trojan city the city of Troy, and he calls his wife in and they talk and he wants to tell her, here's what you have to do if the enemies break through the walls. And at first she doesn't want to hear it. She goes, no, and he says, listen, you have to hear me. If the enemy breaks through the wall, first of all, they're going to kill all the men. Then they're going to throw all the babies over the city walls. Then they're going to take all the women and lead them off into captivity. Listen to me. Here's how you have to be ready. And he devises a plan and tells her how to get out in case that's going to happen. Of course, if you know history at all or know the story, you know how it ends. They have the famous Trojan horse. And the Greeks apparently desert the war camp. They all leave and leave this horse. The horse is wheeled into the city. 
the enemy spills out in the night out of this giant wooden horse structure. And, of course, they take the city. The city doesn't fall simply by or stand by military might. It's the Lord's protection. Think about the Roman Empire. In the long run, it didn't fall to the bar barbarians because of their strength. In the long run, it crumbled because of moral decay from the inside. Unless the Lord guards the city, its sentries guard it in vain. It's a mistake to leave God out of your life, to count on anything else for your security. If we do that, all of our accomplishments are going to be nothing, pointless. And all of our best intentions are going to be wasted. So the key is this. Trust God and let Him be your security. Put Him in charge and then relax. The third thing is this. Unless we're doing the work God has for us to do, our work is pointless. You know, one of the outcomes of the fall, the story that's told in the opening of the Bible in Genesis, and it tells how God made creation good, and He made Adam and Eve in His own image. They were good, too. They had the capacity for good, but they had moral will. They could make decisions for good or evil. Adam and Eve chose to do wrong instead of follow in God's way. And so the fall. As a consequence, God tells them this. There's going to be a curse introduced into the world. He doesn't curse them, by the way. There's a consequence for them, but he curses the ground. This is what the account says. God tells Adam, all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from the earth. It'll grow thorns and thistles for you, though you'll eat of its grains. All your life you will sweat to produce food until your dying day. Then you'll return to the ground from which you came, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Bummer. That is a hard word, isn't it? But that's the consequence of human rebellion. That's the consequence that even our work no longer becomes something good and gifted by God. Apart from Him, it becomes a grinding labor. How frustrating. This is what it says in Ecclesiastes. The teacher knew this well. In fact, the book opens this way. Ecclesiastes 1.1. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Well, that's a bleak word. That's a grim word. But everything is meaningless apart from the gift of God that infuses our lives with meaning. So the cautionary word of the psalm is, be careful, don't go in that direction. Don't try to do it on your own. It's meaningless. It doesn't work. Solomon, the king who wrote this psalm, was the temple builder. He knew that without God, the temple was nothing more than a big empty box. You know, without God at the center of the church is useless to the world. You might as well ride across the front door. The Spirit of the Lord no longer dwells here. And that's what's going on if God isn't at the center. We need to be aligned with His purpose. You might as well ride above the door. The Spirit of the Lord doesn't live here anymore. Work is the same way. Without God at the center, work is nothing more than killing time. Families the same way. 
We're just a collection of people who stay together out of convenience unless God is at the center. Well, I said that there's a second part of the psalm, and believe me, it gets better. The second part is a word of encouragement. It's how the two basic parts of life, work and family relationships, become fruitful and good when we put God at the center. The second part is better. It shows the blessing of God that He has in mind for us. Everything we do becomes meaningful because it's a gift from the Lord. We see it in the two major areas of, the, of our life, of work and family. See, with God at the center, the church comes alive. The faith becomes the very best adventure you could have. With God at the center, our families become blessed. You know, too often our society sees children as nothing more than, a, than an inconvenience. And yet with God at the center, we come to see that they're a gift from God. They're, they're a joy and an asset to us. Like the psalmist says, you're blessed when your quiver's full of them. We can thank God for the gift of each other. With God at the center, even work takes on meaning. Work becomes worship. It's a way of saying, thank you, God, for everything you've given to me. I want to serve you. So I'm trying to learn this lesson, this lesson of trust, as we follow the Lord's leading in our life. You know, it's a challenge for me. There's a whole bunch of unknowns out there as, as Evelyn and I and our family contemplate the next step in our ministry. A whole bunch. But I'm finding out that that casts me into dependence on the Lord in a, in a fresh new way. And in the process, I'm learning He's going to take care of us. It's turning out to be the very best place to be. In trusting Him, there's peace. Well, how do we put God at the center? I want to suggest one way that if you're not doing this already, just one way to try this summer. That's to take on family devotions. And if you're a single, garner a couple people, gather a couple people around you and try to do this. If you've got a family, then do this in your family. But just commit to one night a week, one night a week pulling together around Scripture. And it might only take a few minutes but you gather together. Maybe the Psalms would be a good place to start because we're studying it in here. And in fact, in your bulletin, you have the study questions. That could be something to do. If you don't want to do that, then great. But just open up the Psalms and read a brief Psalm together. If you want to talk about it, you can and think about what it means. But the main thing is just read it together out loud. Then pray together. Give everybody a chance to pray and in your prayers, just offer sentence prayers. You could follow a format like this, like the Acts prayer. I know that a lot of you have heard of it. But the A is for adoration. That's telling God how great He is. The C is for confession. That's coming clean before God. It's, it's being real before God about our shortcomings. The T is for thanksgiving. It's just listing your blessings. And the S is for supplication. That's just saying, Lord, here's where I need your help. It's putting our prayer request before Him. Then after you do that, maybe you want to close by saying the Lord's Prayer together. You know what? A long time ago, when I was seven years old, my mom and dad became Christians. And we started this practice in our family. We'd gather a night a week, and we'd just do simple family devotions. And we'd do it all the way through the years where I was growing up. Now I've continued that in my own family. It's our way, one of our ways, that we're trying to put God at the center 
of have him be the foundation, of have him be the, the builder of the house so that we're not doing it on our own. You know what? If we trust Jesus, then God has already adopted us as his sons and daughters. And he wants to free us from fear. He wants to free us from anxious overwork, from futile family life. And he wants to bring purpose and joy and strength and truth into all of our relationships when we make him the center. You know what? That's a free gift, not only for dads, but for all of us. Let's bow and give thanks. Lord, my prayer for myself and for each one of us is that we might put you at the center. Have you be the foundation. Have you be the builder of our house. And Lord, when we do that, we want to see the amazing things you do in our life. So we commend this in our lives into your care tonight, and we, we just ask your help in doing this. We pray it uh, for your sake. Amen.